Are you on the go and only have a short window to peek at the local headlines? We've got you covered. The KOSU Daily Podcast brings you Oklahoma news every weekday in a condensed and accessible way. Head over to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to the KOSU Daily to get the scoop on the latest Oklahoma news. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Governor Stitt's newest top aide also happens to be the businessman who was the deciding vote in advancing a controversial Catholic charter school. Oil executive Brian Bobeck, who made headlines for his 11th hour appointment to the virtual charter school board, is now working as deputy chief of staff to Governor Stitt. Ryan, what do you think of this hiring? Well, I think any time that the governor is looking to fill a post like this, he has a pretty limited pool of applicants. Uh, it's, it's very difficult to convince people, especially individuals that are in the private sector or maybe have retired from the private sector. Uh, and that seems to be where the governor likes to bring uh, his, his staff from. You know, a lot of them aren't necessarily public servants or, or lifelong state employees, although some of them that have been tend to be his, his most promising and shining appointments uh, or hires within state government. But he brings a lot of folks in from outside, from private sector. Those are really difficult jobs to say, give this up, come work in my administration. Uh, particularly whenever the governor's administration seems to be you know, continually embroiled in turmoil, uh, battles with tribal nations in the state of Oklahoma, uh, you know, fights with the legislature, um, and, and in this case, you know, fight with the state Oklahoma Attorney General, Gittner Drummond, uh, and I would add the United States Constitution. So to bring somebody in uh, like that, again, hard, hard hiring pool to begin with, it doesn't surprise me that he uh, would uh, rely on someone in a post like this that has been a hired gun in the past. I mean, that's exactly what he looked like whenever he walked into the uh, charter school board vote and dropped that vote to uh, to approve the charter school contract with St. Isidore Catholic Schools, uh, which now has teed up this litigation that everybody seems to think is going to be headed straight to the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, uh, at some point in the future. So, um, you know, he's somebody that has demonstrated that he's willing to do the governor's bidding, uh, even when that bidding, according to the Oklahoma Attorney General, may not even be in line with the law and the Constitution. Neva. Well, it, it is interesting. And as you say, Ryan, I mean, the governor does have the prerogative to make his hiring choices, and, and particularly those that are going to have the closest working relationship with him. A deputy chief of staff uh, certainly fits that uh, criteria. Uh, you're right. He's someone that uh, does come with some controversy. I think the fact that he came on board in late November, and yet this really didn't come out, I think with the holidays and kind of the the low-key capital uh, atmosphere up there. But now we're getting ready for a new session. We're getting uh, uh, everything ginned up, and I think this will put him uh, in a position for much more attention, much more focus. Um, he appears, according to uh, some of the published reports, that uh, he recently retired or left uh, British Petroleum after more than 20 years uh, uh, working with them. So. He is someone that the governor has a lot of confidence in, has been, uh, I think, on at least three now uh, board appointments by the governor. So we'll see how this role evolves. But uh, uh, no question, I think the fact that uh, uh, many in the media not only are interested in what the position is going to entail, but also uh, his salary, which uh, the governor's office basically said, if you want that information, 
taxpayer-funded uh, salary that you must uh, put a FOIA request in and a ask for it in that way. So we'll see what that information uh, unfolds in the next probably few weeks, as I'm sure many of these folks will make, make that request. And, and that point about the salary seems to be this bizarre flex. You know, when the, the governor's office was asked about whether or not Bobic had been hired, they said that they had to get back with the Tulsa World to say you know when he had been hired. They then confirmed that he is, his start date was November 27th. But Neva, you're exactly right. When they ask how much is he making, they said, well, you got to put an open records request for that. Uh, that seems something uh, kind of you know, bizarre, and it's it is kind of this continuation of uh, increased hostility between elected officials and the media. Uh, you know that, and that is just incredibly unfortunate. Um, you know, regardless of what you think about this hire, regardless of what you think about the state administration or any administration, uh, I think Oklahomans should be able to know just how much are our state employees making? How much are appointed officials making in these jobs? I'm not, I don't think that he's probably, I'm sure that whatever he's making in the state of Oklahoma uh, payroll is much less than he made for British Petroleum. Well, I think that that's, and that's yeah, fine. True. But we should just be able to know these things. Well, and, and, you and be able there, to is, ask. there is that website, and I believe it's still up. I haven't looked at it recently, that does have all of that information about state employees. So it may well be that someone just goes directly to right. that. And if they have the name and the information that they need, they can look it up. I thought it was also interesting that two things the statewide virtual charter school board. Uh, now has a vacancy. It will be a speaker's appointment because that was uh, the the appointment was made uh, of Bobeck by uh, Speaker McCall. Second thing is that uh, the board chair, uh, Robert Franklin, when asked uh, by uh, the Tulsa World, I believe it was, about his reaction to this, he said it was an embarrassment. In fact, went on to talk about how upsetting it was, thought it was uh, contrived, had a lot of you know very negative uh, comments made to that. And we'll see kind of how that spills over in this continuing drama between, as you say, the governor, the attorney general, the court, all, all that entails this issue of whether or not uh, Oklahoma is going to have the nation's first uh, religious charter school if it ultimately is opened. Governor Stitt is rejecting a new federal summer food program for children. Similar to a pandemic-era program, families would have received $40 per month for groceries using electronic benefits transfer, or EBT. The move is being called a disappointment by child advocates. Neva, why would the governor turn this down? Well, I mean, the governor said, and I think there were several other governors in other states, that, uh, that, it, that the information from the feds did not come quickly enough and completely enough for them to make a determination whether or not they wanted to uh, uh, to go down this road. Um, it, it does appear that this basically would be a summer program where um, I think the, at least the upshot is that uh, there would be $40 a month uh, for kids who would qualify on free and reduced uh, uh, free and reduced meals during the school year to be able to access uh, purchase groceries on these uh, EBT basically an electronic uh, debit uh, debit transfer so um, ironically I mean when you think back Oklahoma did this program last year I think uh, to the tune of somewhere around 50 million dollars uh, uh, in this summer food uh, funding program, but the governor basically, I think, set it up and said, look, uh, there are other avenues for this to be done, and uh, he really seems focused on letting these nonprofits uh, and other regional food banks and others 
uh, kind of fill that gap. Now, the question is, given the sheer numbers of what we're talking about of children in Oklahoma who qualify, over 400,000, I think the number was, during the pandemic, it was uh, even well beyond a half million uh, children that qualified. So I think lawmakers, as we see them come back in, you know, just in a few weeks, this again is going to be one of those conversations where they ultimately are going to have some say because they're undoubtedly going to get a lot of pushback or a lot of uh, a, a lot of interaction with uh, constituents in their districts trying to figure out why this happened, what the other options are, and certainly, as has been pointed out many times, in rural Oklahoma, this is the greatest area where they have the issues of being able to use these other uh, these other avenues rather than just being able to use the EBT. EBT that's a mouthful yeah. card. Yeah. <laughs> so... Right. Well, you know, let's let's look at silver lining first here. Silver lining is that this has raised the issue of food insecurity to the top of the fold mm-hmm. uh, in, in many media outlets around the state of Oklahoma. You know, 14.3% of households in Oklahoma have children that are dealing with low food security. Uh, you know, 20% of Oklahoma's kids live in childhood poverty. Uh, so one in five of our kids in the state live in childhood poverty. That's an extraordinarily awful number. Uh, and when we think about Oklahoma is saying that we want to be a top 10 state. This is not the top 10 that we want to be in. This is you know, very, you know, we're coming out of the, the holiday season and we, we think about, you know, all of the joy and the hope that the holiday season and the new year bring. But for one in five Oklahoma kids, they're living in just very dire conditions. And some of those dire conditions include very dramatic food insecurity issues. That's something that is particularly exacerbated in the summer months when these kids aren't in school. We saw the EBT program really shine during the pandemic where your parents uh, that met these qualifications or were enrolled in a school that had a certain poverty level threshold were getting these EBT cards. Uh, They could then take those cards and go buy groceries uh, for their family. And it was a very successful way of delivering funds and getting food into onto the plates of hungry kids and hungry families in the state of Oklahoma. And even you mentioned rural Oklahoma. If you have a if you have like a big food distribution center, uh, well, that might make sense if you're in Oklahoma City uh, or in Tulsa or Norman. Uh, but if you're in Seminole, you, you, you know, if you live in Seminole, great. But what if you live in Wewoka? What if you live in Sasakwa? What if you're coming in from Maud? Uh, you know, that, dri- that drive in and of itself when you're trying to balance work, uh, family life, everything else, that can make it an impossibility to be able to get access to the food that's given directly out. So these EBT cards become a real lifeline for these families. Um, the, chair, the chief of the Cherokee Nation, Chuck Hoskin, said that he was bewildered uh, by the governor's decision. And uh, to note that what the, uh, the Cherokee Nation has done is because as a so- sovereign government themselves, uh, they have applied for, and now they are going to be participating in this EBT program. And tribal and non-tribal kids in the Cherokee reservation are going to be able to participate in the EBT program. And so if you're a rural lawmaker and you've got kids that are getting these EBT cards uh, to help them you know, get food during the summer, and they can say, well, this is because of the Cherokee Nation, regardless of whether I'm a tribal citizen or not, and the state of Oklahoma turned their back on them, that's not something you want to walk into the election cycle with. This seems like kind of a no-brainer. Let's accept this. Let's take you know the very small overhead that the state would have to put out for this uh and and everybody walks away a winner and we feed more kids well and let's be clear that there are uh, there are programs that will be in place uh such as snap such as the uh, the state department of education summer food program as you mentioned uh ryan the regional 
uh, uh, food banks and others. So there will be avenues. I think the question will be, is it sufficient and where are the gaps and will this, uh, will there be the coordination necessary? And the governor said he'd be working with, uh, uh, with his folks over at the Department of Human Services to make sure that, uh, that they were engaged and identifying and making certain that there weren't uh, 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 children falling through the cracks. So that will be some pressure applied in that area. And I think the other thing to point out is that in the most recent Kids um, uh, kids Count annual report, that's the national report that really state by state looks at uh, various metrics on um, how children are faring in, in the particular state, that Oklahoma still ranks or ranks this year 46th, um, and that includes uh, measurements that deal directly with what we're talking about with terms in terms of food security. The State Department of Education says 578 new teachers are starting their jobs after applying for a signing bonus of up to $50,000. The Tulsa World obtained documents showing 117 of the recipients are teachers from 26 states. The rest are going to Oklahomans who had left the teaching profession. The agency says the program has now been suspended because the allotted money has been spent. Ryan, what do you think of this signing bonus? Well, I think that there's a lot that we just don't know about the signing bonus just, just yet. And what the State Department of Education has turned over, they turned over uh, apparently in response to a subpoena by the Oklahoma legislature. So this this information, the legislature's you know, reviewing the documents that were turned over as a result of that subpoena. This is part of that information that was turned over. The things that we don't know, uh, how, you know, what what criteria were used to say that an applicant was accepted or not accepted. Uh, we don't know necessarily the credentialing uh, situation for a lot of these out-of-state teachers. You know, were they credentialed, were they not, um, you know, what subjects. Um, we don't know yet in particular about the teachers that were in Oklahoma. Uh, you know, so we know a lot about, uh, we know more, I should say, we don't know a lot about anything right now. Uh, but we know more about these out-of-state teachers, but we don't know a lot about the, uh, the demographics, the criteria, of the the teachers that came from in-state. We do know that a lot of the school districts that applied for and received these grants, and no fault of them, heck, if there's money out there, go for it. Uh, but the school districts that got them, um, Epic Charter Schools, I think was one of the leading uh, recipients of these grants. Um, so we're, we're not even talking about putting you know, uh, teachers in physical classrooms. We're talking about, you know, again, you're kind of subsidizing teachers coming into the statewide uh, virtual charter school, which, you know, Good, bad, and different, but that's one of the things that's happened here, even though this was really promised, I think, to help bring in teachers to rural Oklahoma. But you have metropolitan schools, Edmond, Oklahoma City, Tulsa Public Schools, uh, that seem to be some of the largest recipients here. Rural schools, by and large part, you don't see a lot of numbers going into uh, those schools. So was it a success? I mean, I think any new teacher in a, in a classroom uh, that we can recruit is, is a great thing, but to say that this is some sort of a panacea is certainly not it. It, it still looks much more to me like a gimmick uh, to be able to say that we're doing something when we're really not doing anything at all. Neva. Well, I agree with you, Ryan, in terms of uh, there's still a lot of questions, uh, and I think uh, lawmakers will, again, have those to ask the superintendent and his folks. But when you look at the basic numbers, I mean, uh, according to the information that was provided, uh, these bonuses uh, they basically used all of the money, in fact, used in excess, uh, apparently. I mean, there were $16 million, uh, set aside by the department for the bonuses, and according to the commitments and the information that's been supplied, that number 
uh, appears to be over 17 million that was actually uh, expended. So, but when you look at these um, these bonus applications, most of the both, most of those applications got the max, the fifty thousand uh, dollar bonus. But you're right, most of them went to metropolitan uh, area schools districts. And when you really kind of drill down into it, I think the question still becomes, uh, does the information in terms of the number of applications from out of state and, and kind of how, how all of this unfolded, does it match really what uh, the superintendent has been saying? And there seems to be some discrepancy still in the numbers. And I think people are just going to have to ferret through all of this and, de- and determine um, kind of what the bottom line is. But to say 26 states, um, th- at least 26 states, uh, we had teachers uh, come into the state uh, uh, under this program. It appears that the vast majority came from three states, surrounding states, Texas, Arkansas, uh, Kansas. So no surprise. And I think, uh, I think in looking toward the future, will there be any appetite for continuing to try to do, do this type of program for teacher recruitment? Clearly, there's a great need still uh, to recruit teachers to Oklahoma across all counties uh, to be able to uh, to fill the gaps and the needs. So I think this will be part of the bigger conversation that we'll see these educa- education appropriators and others uh, in the legislature really honing in on uh, in this session. It is rich to see a guy who brands himself as this you know, uber conservative, Ryan Walters, you know, he's, he's, you know, more conservative than anybody in the state of Oklahoma. And he spends more than he was allotted. You know, that, you know, (laughs) you don't really, you know, that's, you know, let's, let's, let's not let that go unnoticed. You know, he was given $16 million or so to spend on this program. He spent $17 million on the program. So real conservative, uh, Mr. Walters, real conservative, but the, the numbers, uh, just to put them in perspective real quick, 578 approved bonuses, Right now, there are around 40,000 public school teachers in the state of Oklahoma, still well below what we need. So, you know, 578 added to that 40,000. Again, any new teacher is a, is a, is a you know, great thing. We should celebrate it. Uh, but if we think about the effect of a program like this on getting us to where we need to be, it's you know, really going to uh, have to ramp up or spend a lot more money to get us anywhere close to moving the numbers. State Superintendent Ryan Walters is heading before a House subcommittee to present his 2025 budget next week. This comes after the chairman of the committee, Representative Mark McBride, along with House Speaker Charles McCall, subpoenaed Walters over the holidays. Walters complied with the request, but Neva, what can we expect from this meeting this Wednesday? Well, I think what we expect is that, uh, as with every agency coming before these committees, uh, there will be questions, and they will expect uh, transparency and information and answers to their questions. Nothing new. There's no reason to expect that this needs to be uh, an adversarial or hostile uh, situation in this particular committee uh, hearing. But I do think that given the backdrop that we should expect that uh, Representative McBride, Representative Baker, and others that are chairing these major education committees are going to, along with the members on those committees, are going to have some questions and uh, hopefully we'll have an exchange that will be much different from last session where we saw this just uh, this constant skirmishing not only with the superintendent and the legislators but also with uh, uh, staff over at the Department of Education. So I think it's it's a case where, as Representative McBride in his uh, statement said, that he was glad uh, that the information was forthcoming. He looks forward to a much uh, more cordial and, and uh, positive working relationship uh, in this session. And I think now the uh, we'll wait and see kind of how that, uh, how that uh, turns out. 
Ryan. Well, and you you mentioned the uh, that you know, Charles McCall, Mark McBride had signed on to that subpoena. Chairman McBride had signed on to the subpoena. Let's not forget you mentioned Representative Rhonda Baker. Yeah, mm-hmm. Representative Rhonda Baker, who, who is the, the chair mm-hmm. of the House Common Ed- Education Committee. She was also on that subpoena to Superintendent Walters. Uh, I think when you've got the three of those folks lined up uh, against you in the in the Oklahoma House of Representatives, you've got a formidable team uh, that is is ready to you know, you know, take this to whatever extent that they need to to get the information that they believe taxpayers in the state of Oklahoma are entitled to, that parents of, of students are entitled to in the state of Oklahoma, that educators are entitled to. And uh, I, I was I was uh, grateful to see the subpoena drop. I you know, dropped over the, the holiday break, which I think was a favor to the superintendent, you know, that you, know, you got a low news cycle. Uh, and this is something that, you know, you can you can dismiss this by just giving us the documents. And, uh, you know, Chairman McBride had said, that he was grateful that he seemed to comply, but that he was still going to be reviewing the documents to make sure that everything that he requested in the subpoena or that everything that was requested in the subpoena uh, was actually delivered. And we already see some deficiencies there. We, we talked just a moment ago about this teacher bonus program, and we received information about out-of-state teachers uh, that had received these signing bonuses that had been awarded to them, up to $50,000 uh, each in, in some instances. But we don't have a, a, a complete picture of those out-of-state teachers. We certainly don't have a picture of the in-state teachers, Oklahomans, that had received those bonuses to come back to teaching. So I, I, uh, I, you know, I think we've got to. Is it was it Ronald Reagan trust but verify? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think we we've got to have a little bit of of that right now because the idea that. Uh, Ryan Walters was sitting at home drinking eggnog and gets the subpoena <laughs> and then, you know, calls his, you know, his buddy Matt Langston up at the Department of Education and says, give them everything that they want uh, and then some. I, don't, I just don't think that that happened. I think that we're, we're still going to be looking at incomplete information. I wouldn't be surprised if that committee meeting doesn't begin next week with requests for and questions about, you know, what are the gaps in documents that we were given here? Uh, so every, you know, get your tickets, everybody. Show up to the committee meeting. It, 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 oh, hopefully, it'll be something where they ask questions, they actually get answers. Uh, I tend to doubt that because that doesn't seem to be the track record of the superintendent. Uh, but if you can't attend in person, you can always watch online. You know, I, I encourage Oklahomans. You go to okhouse.gov and you can you can find the links and you can watch these committee meetings yourself. And you know, it's interesting. The uh, there was an education spokesman that made a. A statement basically to the effect that uh, Superintendent Walters always uh, was willing to work with Speaker McCall and other um, members of the legislature to do, you know, to do what is necessary to deal with problems in education, but clearly was kind of a side swipe to the fact that uh, they continue not to acknowledge and not to really want to engage uh, directly with Representative McBride and his committee. So uh, whether or not the tone of that can change, given the fact that he does chair the this committee that will be holding the hearing next week. Hopefully, um, hopefully we'll see a new day and a reset, and we'll see a much more constructive conversation going into the session. A task force is recommending a voluntary per mile tax rather than paying the tax at the gas pump. The conclusion from the Department of Transportation's Road User Charge Tax Task Force came after a pilot program where hundreds of Oklahomans tracked and reported their mileage. If lawmakers follow through with the recommendations in the coming session, it wouldn't take effect till 2027. Ryan, what do you think of a per mile road tax? Well, let's think about the reason for it first. The reason uh, and rationale behind this study to begin with is that we're beginning to see declining revenue from uh, fuel tax. 
And a lot of that has to do with increased mile per gallon requirements at the federal level from the EPA. Uh, we're beginning to see a larger transition to uh, electric vehicles uh, and hybrid vehicles that are having, you know, gas mileage you know numbers that are well well above the uh, EPA requirements. And in the case of electric vehicles, don't have any sort of uh, you know fuel tax at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can tell you, I, I drive two cars. I have a I have an electric car. Uh, and I have a 1996 Toyota uh, Land Cruiser that I drive around. And so, you know, I, I'm, I am large. I contain multitudes, uh, I suppose. But, you know, now that I have my electric car, I'm at the fuel station. So uh, infrequently, it's, it's kind of uh, jarring to like show up and have to actually put gas in your car. So that's where we're headed with this. And, and I think that the Oklahoma Department of Transportation is right to recognize that that revenue stream is going to be reduced over the coming years. And um, you know, this is, I think, an interesting way to, to go about that. Now, when you start uh, saying things politically, I mean, so we can talk about the policy of it. The policy of it sounds kind of interesting and, and novel, uh, maybe innovative. But when you look at the politics of it, where the rubber hits the road, uh, and it's a terrible pun right here, but <laughs> in, in the legislature, the words like voluntary tax, uh, uh, yeah. Things like GPS monitoring <laughs> devices in your vehicle. Uh, you know, those, those things, uh, I think, we are enormous red flags. And so I, I doubt that we're going to see anything from the legislature this session. Uh, this is going to be a conversation that they're going to have to discuss. And it's going to be a conversation that they're going to have to have their constituents. Constituents are going to have to understand how this would work. You know, are there privacy interests at stake here? Uh, would they end up paying more in tax? versus what they're paying right now. Is this a new tax? Um, so there are a lot of political issues here that I think make this seem like an impossibility for any action in 2024, but it is a conversation that I anticipate we'll see for years to come now. Neva? I agree. I think it's a conversation that's a long-term conversation, but the fact that they had this uh, pilot program, the Spare Miles Oklahoma, um, something that I think there's probably 25 or 35 states across the nation that are looking at this issue. So this is something I think where these folks are really on the uh, on the ground floor of the conversation that will be many years and many sessions uh, in in the making. But when you begin to look at the numbers, I mean, if you forecast in terms of a 30-year look, yes, I mean, there's no question that the, um, the fuel tax revenue based on just current projections would be more than 50% lower than where we are right now. So it would be unsustainable over the long haul. But looking at the idea of uh, whether the public has a real appetite for this, I mean, the 450 or whatever um, Oklahomans who were in this pilot program, yes. I mean, at the end of it where they did the six-month reporting and they either had the GPS, like you said, or they took a photograph of their odometer every month and they they compiled this information, um, it was interesting that the average monthly invoice, I think, uh, if, I, if I remember correctly, was somewhere around 10 bucks uh, a month uh, the, the, based on a one cent per mile uh, usage. So, um, I, I think that this is a, it's interesting from, from a policy perspective to see uh, this kind of, uh, th- this kind of uh, task force and this 40-page-plus report uh, that ODOT has put together. And as they said, look, it may be something where they look at it, say, you know, interesting, we're not going to act on it now. Interesting, we want more information. Interesting, we want to uh, kind of uh, have some pilot program perhaps or something that is broader uh, across Oklahoma to get uh, you know additional information but you're right Ryan when you start talking about this 
the education is the key component for Oklahomans. I mean, you can't have them hearsay, uh, just bits and pieces, not really know that this is just a conversation rather than something that is uh, on the forefront of being implemented without having the potential with some political backlash in the districts for these lawmakers. So um, I, you know, I do think that uh, that they've done a good start in getting some real information. Now we'll see where they choose to go from here. Manufacturer Canoe delivered the first electric vehicles to the state of Oklahoma to help modernize its fleet. The first vehicles to come out of Canoe's assembly facility in Oklahoma City cost the state around $120,000. Neva, what do you think about the state getting EVs for its fleet? Well, I mean, I think that the move is on. Um, the governor certainly uh, is uh, fully supportive of this, sees this as kind of uh, uh, really aligning with uh, their view of how to modernize the uh, the state fleet and, uh, and move forward. It, it is interesting in terms of canoe and what they're doing in Oklahoma. You know, originally they were going to uh, build this manufacturing plant in Pryor. Uh, that changed, and now they've uh, basically refitted a um, a, a manufacturing plant in western Oklahoma City that they're using for this, and now they're going to have their um, their plant in Prior that will be the battery module plant. So they have an investment in the state. It'll be interesting. They seem to, you know, certainly be struggling. Um, I mean, there was a lot of conversation in a lot of the financial write-ups at the end of the year just last week. I mean, when they, uh, the last day uh, that the uh, um, the stock market closed. I mean, you saw in trading that uh, I think their 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 shares were 26 cents uh, mm. a year ago. They were a dollar 23. So I mean, th- those are those are certainly things that uh, uh, the the economists and and folks that are looking at it from the state perspective, financial perspective, have to take a look at. But right now, the officials at Canoe say that they have three billion in orders, and uh, if that uh, continues, then they ought to be. Uh, potentially in a very good place to move forward and and have a long-term future in Oklahoma and across the country. Right. Yeah, three billion in orders. I think that, you know, it remains to see, you know, how that all comes to fruition. How many of those orders are part of deals like they've made with the state of Oklahoma where, you know, you give us an incentive package uh, or, or and, and in return, you know, part of the incentive package, you know, would obligate or will come to your state, but part of the, the ticket to coming to your state is you're obligated to purchase a certain number of vehicles. You know, I, I don't know uh, off the top of my head and I haven't, haven't done the research of, you know, how many of those $3 billion orders are part of deals like that versus, you know, some you know, larger company that's, you know, doing distribution and needs a bunch of electric vans. I mean, if you, if you look at the photos up, they look kind of look kind of neat. You know, I'm, I'm also one of the guys that thinks that the Tesla Cybertruck looks cool when everybody else tells <laughs> me they, really? I know, I know, right? I, you know, everybody else tells me that they look, it looks like a car that if you told an eight year old to, design, well, a, truck, to yes. design a car, that's what it would look like. Well, I mean, you know, I guess the inner eight year old in me kind of likes it. Um, but so I kind of, I kind of like the way that these, these vans look. Uh, I do think that in terms of the, the state fleet moving to electric for uh, a great deal of the fleet over the next many years, if not the, the entire fleet at some point, is just an inevitability. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're going to be moving that way. Um, we haven't seen any press releases from the oil and gas community about this and, and you know, their, their position on the state moving towards renewable energy uh, and, and battery technology and electric 
car technology or electric vehicle technology and away from internal combustion engines. Well, and That's, I think the reports have shown that the, the state's obligated or at least said that they have a commitment for something around 1,000 cars uh, ultimately with canoe these vehicles. So that's a that's a fairly substantial start, at least during uh, this administration. And we'll see how that moves forward, because you're right. Uh, there is the rub. I mean, we're, we're not going to see an either-or situation. I think the question is how this folds in and whether or not there is the uh, level of support that will be required to keep it moving in the area of these vehicles. Yeah, it could ultimately save the state a ton of money. Mm-hmm. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org. Hey there, this is Jenny May Harms with KOSU, where we want to talk with you, not just at you. One way we connect with listeners just like you is through social media like Instagram. So follow us at KOSU Radio, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into KOSU reporting, station news, and even ticket giveaways. Just follow KOSU Radio on Instagram, and we'll see you there.